Hello and welcome back to Corona Radio, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Avram Rosenzweig and this is show five. Um, I'm very excited to have with me today my uh, very dear friend Ron McLean from Hockey Night in Canada. How you doing, Ron? I'm great, Avram. Uh, firstly, I want to thank you very much for joining us, uh, particularly in these challenging times. We've been talking about doing a show for a while, um, but uh, your schedule was crazy. So I thought to myself, okay, you know what? Maybe there's a silver lining in all this crazy coronavirus stuff. Maybe I can get in touch with Ron, and now he might be available. You are a busy man generally, and things have stopped for you. How is that? Well, I think uh, it's it's a little uneasy. To be honest with you, I'm enjoying the peace and quiet of him, and I feel guilty saying that because so many, uh, obviously, frontline medical professionals and lots of workers at grocery stores, pharmacies, couriers, the letter carriers, you know, so many people are doing uh, yeoman service in the name of a greater good. So I always have a smidge of guilt that I'm not carrying my weight, and that that's consistent in my life, never mind through a crisis. But Beyond that, uh, it's been a chance to read non-work-related material. I'm reading currently a book called The Courage to be Disliked, by, which is basically uh, the philosophy of a guy named Alfred Adler, uh, who kind of ran counter to Freud and a little bit counter to Jung in his thinking. And I've got a book on order by Rebecca yep. Sonleet. You know, so I, these are the things that you get to read when you're not reading hockey and Olympic books. So th this is an interesting piece. There's two things that I want to comment on what you just said. First off... Wayne Gretzky uh, said in an interview that I saw online a little while back, um, they asked him, he said, so Wayne, you scored three, four points, you know, in a given night. You must come out to the next game and feel like a million bucks is so on tonight you're going to do six or seven. And Wayne's response was, no, I was always afraid that I'm going to be cut and sent down to the minors. Where does that come from? For, oh, I think that's the sort of Damocles hanging over every uh, professional because you want to uh, do uh, something that, you know, you're not so much concerned with the way things get done, you're concerned with the results. And if you're in a results-oriented state of mind, and work usually takes you there, that's pressure. And it's the pressure of performance. It's the pride in performance. And, you know, in, in our case, and, and for particularly in my case, uh, as I go through a year like I went through with Don Cherry, you know, being let go, and uh, just became a bit of a polarizing story, you know, outside of just doing the job that I do, uh, and having to really think uh, through everything that you were about to say, okay, how is that going to alienate or help to enlighten uh, a viewer uh, who's got different positions on, on what you're talking about? So the, it's been a challenging season and a, and a healthy challenge because it, that sort of teaches you to listen to the greater community instead of just isolating on your family, your friends, your school, your company, your country, your hockey fraternity you go into this larger community again. And that's, I think that's, you know, for you, for me, uh, kind of the fascination of life. And Gretzky understands it. He's, he's an incredible, when he assembly, assembled the Olympic team in 2002, Theron Fleury was going through a difficult phase in his life and he brought him into the team. Eric Lindros was brought into the yep. team. Michael Pekka was in a contract impasse. He was brought to the team. And that's how Gretzky thinks. He, he, he was looking at a whole number of individuals who, who would bring a completely different sort of experience to the mix and, and it created a great community or in this case, great team. When you're talking to Gretzky, do you have a sense inside that you're talking to a very great man? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, I always liken uh, certain people like Scotty Bowman and Bobby Clark and Bob Gainey uh, and Wayne Gretzky yeah. as having a chance to sit with the Dalai Lamas of the game. And But Wayne is much more than just hockey, although that's the sort of lens or prism through which he teaches. Uh, he, he is a good heart, always has had that, uh, I think, sense of, uh, you know, a lucky lot in life. He certainly, as he likes to say... Uh, it's his father was a very great mentor to him, and uh, it wasn't, uh, yeah. you know, uh, God's luck. It was Wally's luck that sort of bestowed in him this talent. But anyway, he pays it forward uh, time and again. You can just feel his goodness. As an example, when the Don Cherry situation was unfolding, Wayne was right on the line immediately. He phoned me. He said he left a message saying, Ron, call me. I'm good at these things. And he likened it to 2006 in the Torino Olympics when – Rick Tockett, an NHL player, and Janet Jones, Wayne's wife, were embroiled in a gambling mm -hmm. controversy. And Wayne was guilty by association, as he put it. And he said, and Ron, you're sort of in the collateral damage of this other story, the Don Cherry, you know, remarks that went awry. Uh, and now you're having to sort of supposedly patch things up or not. Uh, you're not really the main uh, protagonist, but suddenly you're taking on many of the pressures of, of that role. So he said, for me, I, uh, my philosophy was, you know, let sleeping dogs lie, try to say what you say quickly, uh, and then let it lie. So I kind of moved off social media because of Wayne's advice. And Wayne was also saying to me, Ron, now you got to be the king of your own narrative. You know, don't, uh, don't let yep. this, he didn't, he didn't say, don't let this define you, but he did say those exact words. You got to be the king of your own narrative. And I'm, you know, in my own world, uh, a little hesitant to, to accept that uh, because I just think, again, of listening to the greater community is sort of what imbues my my thinking versus sort of taking on. But because of Wayne and how generous he is, I'll listen to everything he says and use it. This is weighing on you, isn't it, Ron? Well, it, it, it isn't, it isn't, uh, Avram. It, what, what was weighing on me a little bit was just the relentlessness of the conversation. You know, every grocery store, yeah. every gas station, that, you know, in, in, in all fairness, my, my sort of identity, uh, you know, Don Cherry used to always say, you are as you perceive to be. And I'd argue, no, you're not. You're, you're, of course, you're not what you perceive to be. You are who you are. Uh, but in the, in the greater scheme of conversation and the irritation of the repetitive subject nature, uh, it weighed on me just a smidge. So this break, this mental health break from having to answer that question, obviously I, I relish. But no, you know, it, it, it isn't weighing on me uh, too, too much. I mean, Don's friendship it bothers me a little to lose. But I mean, if you're going to lose a friend over the, you know, the righteousness of the subject matter, well, that's just how it is, I'm afraid. And, uh, you know, I don't have to teach you that. So it's it's only fascinating to me. Like, it, it kind of ran in uh, in the calendar we had a month of these kinds of subjects arise. We had the Don Cherry incident over his uh, projecting a, an attitude or a behavior on immigrants who weren't buying poppies. Mm -hmm. Then we went into Bill Peters of the Calgary Flames was fired for having uh, uttered the N-word while coaching in the Eastern or American Hockey League. And that led to a greater conversation on racism. Uh, and, and my understanding through that month was how you say things uh, to go back to what I said, it's incredible how you can alienate the very person you're trying to speak with. Uh, you really have, like a, a good example would be the slogan, white male privilege. If I utter white male privilege to a hockey crowd, you know, I've offended the majority of them because they're principally white males. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, you know, to try and explain that lens or that bias, uh, it shuts down with the slogan, with the uh, catchphrase of the day. So you've got to really be careful. Uh, 
how you broach the subject and how you uh, you try to put yourself in the thinking of of the listener or the viewer. Um, Victor Frankl said that life is not primarily a quest for pleasure as Freud believed or a quest for power as Alfred Adler taught, but a quest for meaning. The greatest task for any person is to find meaning in his or her life. In that life, in that like, I'm sorry, in that light, in and I like to ask you these questions because I always find you very prosaic and very philosophical, a bit of an anomaly in the NHL world, quite frankly. Is it at all important that the NHL, that hockey is not being played during this coronavirus? Um, well, it's a show of solidarity. So I think, you know, the, the containment is the uh, decision we've arrived at in terms of our approach. Uh, the other way to have gone at it would be to allow 60% of the population to get the coronavirus and then build an immunity and deal with it that way. But that would have led to a number of deaths in the process. So they opted for containment as, as this approach. And in order to show your uh, link to social distancing, in order to be in it together, uh, it was an important step for hockey players to stay home. We have two members of the Ottawa Senators as we do this conversation yeah. who have contracted the COVID-19. So, and they went, I don't know if it happened in San Jose, but certainly Santa Clara, where we stay when we do the Sharks broadcasts, you know, they were on that trip to California. So the, the optics, like even uh, Avram, I was going to do a, a show on Sportsnet that would have run, would have ran three days a week. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday evenings at 7 p.m. And it would have been a conversation show such as you and I are doing, but on television. And of course, we had to close the, the Rogers building and the CBC buildings to non-essential services. And that was a non-essential service. So, and that's just optics. That's just saying to everyone, well, okay, you know, Ron, we, we love hockey and we may want to hear some of the things you and your colleagues have to say, but at this point, uh, it's not important yet. Uh, you know, the, the need for diversion, I think, ultimately will become a, a part of this exercise. But I think in the early stages, trying to convey the gravity of where we're at, you know, trying to really implore people to stay home. These have been challenging uh, initiatives. Most, yeah. you know, there are, there's a lot of denial out there right now. You, you use the word diversion. Um, I'm going to make a leap here that you would define hockey and baseball and football and squash and cricket. Mm -hmm. as a sort of way for people to get away from the very difficult existential angst that we all suffer from, that we all have. I remember during 9-11, you would have sportscasters get on the air and say, you know what, it's very clear this is putting everything into perspective for us, how important or not important these games are. So well, you not know, having it, sports right now. Go yeah, ahead. go ahead. No, you go ahead. Finish that. Just not having sports right now. Are we indeed losing something extraordinarily important or are we gaining something, a vision of something that we normally don't see because there's so much hockey, there's so much football on TV? Well, I know personally I miss the spring, the extra daylight all through the months of April, May, and June. By the time the Stanley Cup is awarded, the days start to grow shorter again, which has always been a, a bit of a disappointment in my life. But no, I, I wouldn't diminish the role of sport uh, in, in terms of its example on a lot of fronts, physical fitness being the easy yeah. one. Uh, but I think it also is a, an arena or a cauldron of good intentions to see 20,000 people in their Raptors uh, outfits collectively cheering on that ball in the air from Kawhi Leonard. I mean, these are great examples to citizenry of, of collectivism, 
of good intentions shared, and it happens on a scale greater, as it does with the Olympic Games, on a scale greater than you can physically have in a church or a school or a hospital. So it's a good example to the world to see people share goodwill uh, and good intentions. And even if there's an enemy, uh, you know, nothing becomes a a champion like a great rival. So you kind of gain an understanding of the need for for the shadow of yourself. So we all have our shadows. And in the case of team sports, that shadow is the opposition. So I think it's a really important uh, part of our society. I think it has been used in, you know, Pierre de Coubertin invented the Olympic Games after having recognized that the soldiers of England seem to be superior based on their efforts at rugby and Brown and Eton. So the, the lessons learned on the battlefields of sport or the playing fields were applied to soldiering. And so he created the Olympic movement or reinvented it or recreated it in that thought, in that mindset. Uh, so there, there's always, uh, you know, a benefit of lessons of courage, lessons of teamwork, lessons of resiliency, lessons of generosity. All those things are sport related. So it's, it's, it's a valuable thing, even if it is at some, it's two things. It's entertainment and it's a way for somebody to exploit somebody and make money. Right. That's very true on both accounts. The, the, the players that you know, that you have conversations with, um, let's say of a more intellectual nature, those who are able to go deep in terms of who they are, uh, are they at home kind of figuring out what am I supposed to do with my life? Who am I supposed to be? Or do they have strong inner lives, many of them? And they, go, they can go from hockey and a shutdown and move to something which is equally as important in other parts of their lives. I think, uh, yes, they can. Connor McDavid has already been out there socially to encourage people to stay home. But I recognize when the Humboldt crash took place in the Broncos, we lost 16 lives. Uh, I just yeah. remember Connor McDavid's, you know, he went over to the Royal University Hospital in Saskatoon and the interview he granted at that time and about how, you know, no one wants to see people hurting. It was it was profoundly sensitive and empathetic and I mean, he's I, I, Austin Matthews, his agent, Judd's reached out uh, during this crisis. Uh, you know, there, there's that connectivity. And you, you can generally count on the fact, Avram, that those who have succeeded in the NHL probably would have been good at just about anything and have yes. usually that, yes. you know, that, that sort of mindset, uh, that built-in strength of... Uh, of understanding how things come together is is part of why they succeeded. You know, the, the saying in hockey is five sticks are better than one. That's how you create a goal. And right. uh, I, I think it's it's perfectly uh, apparent that the, the superstars, whether it's Gordie Howe or Guy Lafleur or Wayne Gretzky, uh, they all seem to have that little extra whatever that is that is a great understanding of the human condition. Well, there's an interesting sort of Talmudic juxtaposition in the two following quotes I want to put by you having to do with what you just said about five sticks being better than one. An unknown uh, person said, when you pull on that jersey, the name on the front is a hell of a lot more important than the one on the back. That's quote number one. Quote number two by Mark Messier, I think the thing you always got to keep in mind, you know, hockey is a game of one-on-one -on -one battle. So which is it? Is it a team? Is it a community? Is it the community that's fighting the coronavirus? Or are we all in this by ourselves? Well, I, I do think that's the great conundrum of life, the individual versus the collective. And I think that you're yeah. always having to choose between two goods. And these these impossible choices, I, I, you know, to go back to the cherry ordeal, uh, I found I had to choose principle over friendship. 
or loyalty, if you will, which is a horrible choice to have to make. Uh, and we're making that decision all the time. We are, we are confronted with, uh, you know, you don't want to rebuke, you don't want to praise too, too much because it conveys a sense of superiority either way. Uh, and, and I think you need the individual strength. You know, you need core beliefs, which is, uh, you know, teams kind of strip you a little bit of the individual in, in the name of a core belief as an organization. And that's important. But they also mm-hmm. recognize that the strength of the individual, you know, it's like your parenting. Uh, if you don't, I mean, your child, no one's going to go on and pick his university with or without you and pick his partner with or without you. Uh, pick his life for himself with or without you. And it's hard to listen to as a, as a well-meaning and well-intended parent or father. Um, but you can only do so much. You can encourage the good things. Uh, and after that, I think, I don't know how you feel, Avram, but I think we are all on our own a little bit in this life. And you, you, you learn. So, so back to what I said, that's kind of ad lyrian. At the end of the day, to help you make your choices, now you kind of listen to larger and larger communities. And, and in our case, you know, for me, it's been a godsend to get to know uh, Chief Stacy LaForme at the Mississaugas of the Credit here in Ontario, or Chief Glenn Hudson mm-hmm. at Pegwis First Nation in Manitoba, or Grand Chief Wilton Littlechild in Alberta, and have, you know, some of the understandings in the world or the communities are are not just people they're they're not just uh sentient beings but they're actually rocks and trees and lakes those are the communities we should be listening to and and, and in their wisdom and in their experience uh it's fascinating you know so that there's there's a lot of teachers in the room yeah uh, that's that's very well said ron very well said you you for a number of years you were giving classes to the via hafta uh street academy and uh, firstly, we're very grateful to you for doing that. I remember um, our students, many of whom were homeless or near homeless, would be very engaged with the stories that you had to tell. We would always have people looking through the door, through the window in the door, whether it be down at George Brown College or in other venues. Um, you, were, you were quite the attraction, and I always came down to listen to you because I enjoyed your stories so much. One of the <laughs> things that I learned from you was the concept of agape love which is the idea that because you are a creation of God or however you define creation, that I love you. In other words, I have equal love for everybody. You wrote about it in your book, I believe in your book, Cornered. Um, and, and you talked about it in the Via Hofta Street Academy class. Now, what most interests me in this time is just to sort of go back to what we were talking about a minute ago, which was loving everybody equally basically means that you have to give of yourself at this time during the spread of the coronavirus really to everybody whereas one would think well you have your your beautiful wife you know who you've made a life with um and your very very dear friends uh and and initially one would think okay so you know what i'm going to give what i have to them and then if i have anything left i'll spread it out to the world indeed how should we be helping others at this time well, I think uh, again, you're you're going to love everybody equally, but not the same. So that that allows for parental love versus uh, marital bliss versus you know other variations of of love. Um, but ultimately, love is a you know it's it's like in a you know they always say the color white is is all the colors actually. It's not the absence of color, but it's the three primary colors are combined to make white on the TV screen. And love is all these emotions: right. uh, the fear, the you know, it's empathy and, and envy, all of them. Um, so it, it, this it, this crisis will conjure all of these emotions. So for me, the great 
uh, teacher is love, uh, and you want to use that to reach out. You you know you don't have to overdo it. You know you got to save a little time for yourself. Again, these choices between two good things. Do I give myself some time here? Uh, yes, but you also I think will benefit from from that shared. We're all social creatures. We just we're born to that, and uh, I, I think you know for me uh, to just have that that loving. Uh, approach to life is, you know, that Via Hafta Street Academy that you organized, uh, Avram, I, I can't tell you how many great experiences I had in those classes, just realizing, you know, there were brilliant, brilliant individuals who were either through schizophrenia yeah. or addiction or whatever the reason had fallen by on what we would call hard times. I always say, you can't fall from grace. You either have grace or you don't. And I'm not, you can acquire grace, so I shouldn't say it that coldly. But they were all gracious. They were filled with grace, those students. And it was just incredible to know that they were trying to find a, their footing. And, you know, through that class, we could help do that. And I recently did a speech uh, or helped conduct a, a get-together for the Ontario Provincial Police, who have had a number of situations where mental health has resulted in suicide. And they're under tremendous pressures, obviously, in, in policing. And they look at sort of what are the seven predictors of depression and uh, mental health uh, grief. And they obviously mental health's number one. Relationships is a big one. Substance abuse, physical health. Three of them hinge on or kind of hinge on money, jobs, finances, legal. Uh, and anyway, they, they went through... Uh, this great session together up in Ottawa, and I left my phone number for all these officers and the people attending. Yeah. We had Stephanie Richardson, who, along with her husband, Luke, uh, and their daughter, Morgan, they lost uh, a daughter, uh, Darren, to mental health that resulted in suicide. And it was just a great conversation about the state of how we are and how we process things and, and how we heal. And, and for me, that's just freedom, freedom and power. If you use your freedom and power, you know, if you're not sort of beholden to the expectations or thoughts of others, if you're loving, uh, which is, you know, Victor Frankl to a T, uh, then you'll get through it, hopefully. How, how do you show your love? Well, for sure, by offering, uh, you know, your, your, your generosity of thought uh, without without yeah. judgment. You know, that that's the biggest thing is to just uh, to try and encourage. Uh, I, I think with, with me, you know, I've been lucky to be a referee in hockey so you're not there to be liked when you're a referee you're you're there to you you actually refed a, an nhl game back, way back in the uh, early 2000s that's right we did it as a bit of a lark after the change in the rules in 2005 uh, brendan shanahan held a very famous summit and they came out of that with a crackdown on hooking and holding and all the obstruction penalties and so I went in and refereed with Steve Wacom an NHL preseason game between the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Buffalo Sabres. And yeah, yeah, it was a great experience. And, and that, you know, that, that, and that was a very loving thing of the NHL. That was Colin Campbell, uh, who was kind of hot at me because I thought there were too many power plays. So he gave me the opportunity to sort of, you know, walk in their foots, in their shoes, I should say. And, uh, it was a great experience. You know what? I get a kick out of, uh, so, so, some of the things that you've done over your career, you've taken some pretty big risks. You've almost been fired a couple of times. And in your book, Cornered, you talk about how your mom and dad, I guess they're sort of uh, old town, old country people, they get real worried for you. They go, Ronnie, you got to watch what you say, man, because you can lose your job, right? Um, well, and that's and that's back to what I was saying to you about Noah. He's gonna, he's ultimately going to be his own man, you know. And I, I love my parents dearly, yeah. But my freedom had to be to be me, right? And and freedom. Avram, you know, again, Viktor Frankl, uh, I guess it was Nietzsche who said, he who has a why to live can survive anyhow. But people are always just That's amazed great, yeah. at uh, how Frankl could survive, you know, in a prison camp, uh, seeing the atrocities uh, 
By the way, I was just reading another book I just read was Beverly McLaughlin, uh, and it's she's she was a Supreme Court justice, right, for Canada. And I should, uh, gosh, what's the name of the book? Anyway, she talked about ruling on the Keegstra affair back in the 1980s in Alberta. There was nine Supreme Court judges yes. and three actually dissented against uh, Keegstra being charged with hate crimes or hate speech. And she was one of them. And she said, I, I was young and I've, you know, I, I, I should be careful in going too far without knowing. Truth be told is the name of her book. Um, and she just talks about the learning uh you know about ethics. I'm a big you know you and I are both big fans of trying to understand ethics, and you know there you have the there's a person at, uh, at the highest level of ethical understanding of justice who uh, who kind of wanted to fight for the rights of Keegstra, who was a Holocaust denier, and just you know yeah. there's so many uh, arenas in which to learn that it's, uh, you know that's why my parents were right to be afraid, but you know you just have to be free and and take your chance and and use your power. And if you do those two things, one way or another, you're going to heal, no matter how bad the misstep you take. How come your mom told you that a palm reader told her that she's yeah, going to have a child who dies young? <laughs> Why did she tell you that? Well, she just thought I was too brash. Uh, you know, I think, I, I don't think I, I always, you know, had a, I was the captain of my hockey teams, the president of the students' union. I was on the school radio. Mm. So I was kind of an outgoing kid. But I, I assumed being an extrovert was because I had to keep reintroducing myself to new friends as a child of the military. We moved around a lot. I lived in Zweibrück in Germany, Metz, France, Halifax, Victoria, Whitehorse, back to Nova Scotia, then to Red Deer, Alberta. So my life was being blown apart every one to two years. And I would have to start anew in a new hockey organization at a new school with new friends. So I think that for, and I was an only child. So I think yes. I was kind of forced to be a little more gregarious than, than some people. And, and I do think my mother had a little bit of that, uh, uh, outgoing artistic bent. So, uh, but it, but it could also be construed as, uh, you know, uh, lacking in humility. Um, so my, my mom was a great, she just, you know, Ronnie, that's false modesty. Smarten up, you know, you know, I would like to, I would like to smack you for that uh, cockiness. But I, I, I think she also saw the happiness that came with that state of affairs. So she was in, like we all are trying to judge each other, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're always conflicted on when is that, when is the time to step in and save our, save our friend from themselves? Best that you don't you, you, is my you, recommendation. You, you said in the book that you don't live in the future you don't live in the past. You live in the here and now, right now. Yet I always have this sense, Ron, because you're so philosophical in nature, so prosaic, that you have a very, very broad sense of our existence and what comes along with it, again, especially in these times when you have this virus which is spreading all over the world and attacking the innocent, if you will, as, those, as well as those who are not you must be thinking about your demise. You're by yourself, really, as you said, in your house and also existentially. So are you in the here and now and where does that take you? Or are you thinking about the next week or the next year? Well, a little bit uh, work-wise, I'm having to think about do we figure out a streaming service and some kind of an interview show. So that's kind of a a duty to my organization. Uh, but honestly, as I said at the beginning, I'm kind of enjoying the peace and quiet of the situation. It's forced on us. I, I accept a lot of things. Uh, I'm not fatalistic to, uh, by any means, but I'm also, you know, seasoned enough to have known the end of the world has happened a number of times, even in my existence, whether it was the Cuban Missile Crisis or 9-11 or uh, so many assassinations. And, you know, I, I've 
been through a fair bit. And, you know, John Ralston Saul, as you, I think, know, is a is an influence in my life. And he always says, you know, the six basic human qualities of understanding are ethics, common sense, intuition, imagination, memory, and reason. And you don't pick one or the other. You pick all six and kind of, and memory is kind of history. So mm-hmm. you, if, if you just rely on all these different, you know, sort of aspects to your to your being it's i think pretty easy to be in the here and now and just be full of acceptance and and take what is sort of handed you this idea of uh isolation social distancing and think to yourself okay well then i'm going to go look at a tree for a while uh, and just find other ways so I, i always find a little excitement in the in the challenge of something different and i think it does bring out the best it you know we may go through periods of hoarding and we may go through periods of anger at one another or hostility but i think in the end uh the universality of this experience uh the global nature of it uh might go a long way towards uh it's just been fascinating to see different uh, approaches being taken and I think you know as a uh, you know the best sport right now is the grocery store uh, so it's <laughs> it's just funny to see what we do as human beings and uh, find a little bit of pleasure in that and and not not a lot of fear and I mean I suppose that comes from being 60 and knowing well if it ends tomorrow it was a pretty nice run you're, you're not quite 60 you're almost there right that's right <laughs> yeah April 2nd is that right because I'm April, April 27th April- April 12th is for me. So um, I've got about three weeks left in my glorious 50s. And then I I recall reading Bruce Springsteen said he turned 60 and he went into complete kind of darkness. He he felt quite depressed as he entered that decade. So I'm trying to steel myself to be more uh, prepared for uh, what's, you know, mortality obviously starts to confront us each and every year. You know, you you, you talk about uh, humankind and uh, really the brilliance of it. Um, I'm in total sync with you on that. I, I, I keep telling people on the phone or via social media, we're going to be okay. And the reason we're going to be okay is because we are humankind, because we sent a man to the moon, because we found a cure for polio. And the list goes on and on and on. I tell you, just in the last week, I myself have uncovered uh, some very interesting, uh, very creative approaches to developing the N95 masks that, uh, unfortunately, there are not enough of them right now in hospitals and so on. I mentioned on my previous show that a dear friend of mine, Karen Goldenberg's daughter, who's responsible for high-risk kids out in uh, BC, phoned up people whom she knows who sew, and she asked them to sew these masks by using pads, menstrual pads that are, are, are available. And apparently she created a protocol around that enough so that they would work like masks. Another friend of mine, Stephen Granofsky, who owns a uh, uh, menswear uh, manufacturing environment, like Hinky Friedman, and uh, I think it's called Samuelson. Samuelson. Um, he has rejigged his environment, Ron, so that he can now start making those masks once again, which there are not enough of. So I really am in awe of we human beings. And I think that the fact that people live in China can now see the blue waters, can now see the swans coming back because everything's being shut down and the environment is kind of fixing itself slowly but surely. It's showing us the brilliance of who we are as people. And I mean, you must have seen so much of that in your career and you must be seeing it today. Yeah, I think you're kind of on a funny metaphor there. I think the fact that we're all forced into a mask might be the way we get rid of them. 
in very nice metaf- yeah so I, I think that's you know a lot of this is to do with perspective why do some of us have it some of us lose it regain it maintain it all those questions on perspective and i i know there was another fun story of a a distillery who instead of making whiskey are now making hand sanitizer so there is uh genius taking place examples of it all over the world and I have great confidence uh, in science and in our ability to create, uh, you know, the vaccine, the ability to cope with this. I, I do think, you know, like any pressure point, uh, those on the front lines, uh, first responders will need, you know, how do yeah. they sustain high performance if this extends into a six weeks or longer? You know, th- those are slight concerns, but there, again, there are. We, we've come so far on mental health in the last twenty years. You're a big part of that with the Via Half the Street Academy. Um, We'll find ways to to make sure that the overload, uh, you know, that the lack of recovery time, uh, the, the fatigue, all those things that undermine confidence, never mind ability, um, that they're dealt with. Should the NHL season start in the next four weeks or eight weeks? How do you think it's going to look? Oh, I think it would be exhilarating. I, I, only, again, frame of reference would be after the lockout that wiped out the entire year of 0405, they came back on yeah opening night and this was a you know we preached as a society as a as a fan society we're going to give it to the nhl we're mad at heck and we're not going to take it anymore and then of course they opened the schedule for the 0506 season with uh, all 30 teams at the time in action 15 games on a wednesday night i think the ratings were like 5 to 10 million and people were gone mad and it was the most exciting night of hockey i can recall so I assume there will be a similar feeling of uh, frolic when we we bring back hockey. If I, it seems like a long shot, doesn't it? Uh, I'm even you know wondering how yeah. they possibly stage yeah. the Olympics in Tokyo. But so what? I mean, if we have to have uh, we've we've lost a season before, we can lose uh, twice. We lost one to this influenza in 1919, and we certainly lost one in, to uh, labor strife. It wouldn't be the end of the world. I think they're calling that an asterisk on the Stanley Cup, right? Exactly. I think friendship is probably one of the most important things that we can latch on to at this time. Uh, you tell a story of being at the Olympics in China, and you got word that Rose, Don Cherry's wife, was passing, and he had flown home. And you were about to go to air, and that was a little ominous for you, as it would be for anybody. But Bob Yor came up to you, and he recognized your sadness. Mm-hmm. And just tell us the rest of that story. It's a beautiful story of friendship. So, so Avram, that story's from 1997 in the Stanley Cup. What had happened is, because uh, yep. my mother died during the Beijing Olympics in 2008, so I have sort of two moments where uh, colleagues and uh, people in in my circle kind of came to the rescue. But that that story you're telling, Don Cherry's wife, uh, Rose, had initially breast cancer and it metastasized and had become liver cancer. And they tried a stem cell surgery in late May of 1997. And Don had to go home to to be at the hospital and everything was quite hush-hush. Don has always been kind of private in that regard and ask no quarter, give no quarter. So he goes home and uh, I have to open game one of the Stanley Cup in Philadelphia. The Detroit Red Wings are playing the Philadelphia Flyers. And I announce, uh, it's kind of words out that Don Cherry has gone home, but nobody knows why. And I'm about 30 seconds to air at the arena in Philadelphia. And around the corner comes Bobby. 
Yeah. Orr says, he says, Ron, what's going on? And it's Bobby Orr, of course, dear friend, dearest friend of Don Cherry's. I could tell him. I said, well, here's what's happening. Uh, Rose has had a stem cell surgery, but unfortunately it hasn't taken. Uh, and it's, you know, probably just a matter of hours, Bobby. So Don has gone home. And Bobby's response was, Oh, that's awful. Uh, he says, uh, look, he says, I just bought this suit and I, a guy gave me a pretzel. He handed me a pretzel with mustard on it, for God's sakes. And it's all over this brand new suit because he could hear the floor director, the person running the show, saying that I was 10 seconds to air, nine seconds to air. <laughs> so he tried to snap me out of the grief and put me in a better frame of mind to go on the TV in eight seconds. And I, I always remember Bobby's kindness in that in that moment. And finally... Uh, leaders are playing an enormous role in our lives nowadays, be they rabbis, priests, ministers, imams, doctors, nurses, our bosses. A prayer for leaders. Leadership is hard to define. Lord, let us be the ones to define it with justice. Leadership is like a handful of water. Lord, let us be the people to share it with those who thirst. Leadership is not about watching and correcting. Lord, let us remember it is about listening and connecting. Leadership is not about telling people what to do. Lord, let us find out what people want. Leadership is less about the love of power and more about the power of love. Just to find that last line for me, Ron. Well, it's the Via Hafta Street Academy. It's uh, the Stars Gala that you organize, uh, Avram. It's it's all the things that you've kind of dedicated your thinking to, and that is, uh, you know, that daring to to not be unworthy and to not be better than someone but to be in it together. So uh, that's that's love for me, and it's been your example throughout my life, and I'm grateful for it. And I'm very grateful to you, my friend. I really am. I, uh, I'm, I'm so impressed with what you've done with your life, and I love watching you on Hockey Night in Canada, as does my son. We sit there riveted to every single interview, and I've told you this many times. Sometimes I'll actually text you during uh, Hockey Night in Canada. I'll go, Ron, you approach that so beautifully with such a great thought and intellect. I think you bring something highly, highly prosaic to that sport, which we all love so dearly, and I want to commend you for that and thank you for that. You're a good man. Thank you. And God bless you and your family, and we should all get through this soon. And uh, once again, I thank you so much for this interview. You've been listening to uh, Ron McLean as my guest on Corona Radio. Please, if you have any questions or any needs out there that I might be able to help you with organizationally or individually, please contact me at avram at hatradio.ca or you can find me on Facebook and all other social media. We will get through this, my friends. As I said, we are person kind and we are inimitable. Inimitable. We're an outstanding creation. And it's just a question of time. So hang in there. God bless and thank you so much for listening.